Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as usual, we'll be delivering you over the next 20 minutes or so our thoughts around matters of the moment in and around the hotel and accommodation space. I've got Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst, with me, and my name is Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst. And we're starting by taking a look at uh, Soho House, the uh, accommodation restaurant bar and membership business um, that listed itself uh, via a SPAC uh, in in the States uh, a couple of years back and um, has just recently come under attack from a short seller. Um, Glasshouse Research who have delivered a withering attack on Soho House uh, having perhaps bought uh, shorted some of the shares they now declare they believe the business to be worthless and they have listed a whole number of reasons why they've come to that conclusion um, pointing fingers at various accounting policies concerns over membership levels um, concerns over growth concerns over the, uh, all sorts of issues um, it, it, it's an interesting report because it's written in um, well quite uh, quite blunt language in places um, and it appears that uh, it has kind of uh, shaken up the uh, the management of Soho House but uh, who have now said that actually they've they've already looking at potentially taking the business private but what's interesting also is that they had prior to this report coming out they had convened a committee it seems to have a look at the possibility of taking the business private uh, and uh, in the hands of the management and several key supportive investors in the business it would appear that between them they have a substantial majority of the shares already uh, effectively held in one block of affiliates uh, so that they they could make uh, some sort of a move if they wish so so her house, uh, not a happy uh, result so far of, of listing via the uh, SPAC acquisition route, uh, something we've seen other accommodation sector businesses and other businesses not in the accommodation sector use and then somewhat rue. Uh, so not uh, necessarily been a great period for SPACs uh, listing over the last three, four, five years. Yeah, those special purpose acquisition vehicles. I mean, really, you've just got to see that as a way to get a listing quickly. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with them other than the fact that they, there's a whole bunch of money raised on the prospect of bringing stuff to market and everybody was going to be able to make a killing. Um, and indeed, you know, Soho House itself, the shares initially rose on the listing, um, but have now tanked and are... Uh, Worth well, you know, it's, it's not at, at trauma level. They're sort of half the value they were. They're not. They're, they're not. They're, they're, there are worse companies out there in terms of <laughs> post IPO performance. But certainly, it's not been. Well, yeah, I think good. I, I could point to Arrival, the electric van people who have uh, just gone into administration. I think. Oh yes, yep. Uh, there has been. You know, yeah. number, that's you know that's the risk with any growth company um and you know they they are a risky investment now the thing with i, th I think in terms of the thing i would take issue mm -hmm. with that glass house research this is a short seller taking a significant uh, short position but options to uh, buy back the shares at a lower price in the future um what what glass house are arguing is that the fundamental business model of uh, Soho House is broken and doesn't work. Um, I do take issue with that. I don't think they're right. I mean, 
you know some of the stuff they flag up about the accounts yeah you can sort of see that i wouldn't personally i don't i don't look at that i mean you know i'm not a, a qualified accountant but i mean you know i look at enough company accounts and i don't look at that and think this is you know uh, uh, horrible um i think it's untidy and could it could do with a tidying up but it, it's not you know uh, off this scale ghastly um the thing um that i think Glasshouse has got wrong is this idea that uh, you know that there's no future for Soho House, and this no future piece has brought into um, um, the media lovies around this who <laughs> don't like the idea of their um, little uh, personal club um, getting you know if wider and having a further reach and becoming more popular. And there is this thing, you know, can you maintain exclusivity um, while you scale up? Well, if you use the word exclusivity, no, you can't. But if you use a word like, say, special, I think you can maintain something that's special, something that that delivers a good feeling um, and still have, you know, widen and, and get into a mass market. Now, in, in product companies, I think Apple have achieved this, arguably the best um the world's most valuable company off and on um at different stages um but what they have done with their products is is you know offer something which is fairly basic but raised it up to a level where people feel special owning it and they've been able to generate significant margins as a result um with soho house i would argue that they can do something similar in terms of the service sector in which they're playing um and even better they can do that on the subscription model which is something we've talked about in the past and which is a good thing and we like the subscription model um if it can be executed correctly now there's been teething troubles as you expect in terms of growth you've had um issues with people um you know not getting the kind of service they expect and it slightly makes me chuckle you see some of the the you know the reviews and reports and there's people moaning about the quality of service on new year's eve well (laughs) no surprise yeah show me somewhere on the planet where you're gonna get uh decent service on new year's eve and if you do get decent service it's probably not somewhere you'd want to be actually so um (laughs) it it, it, it's just slightly surreal that so um and, and and i do think it's possible that they can um deliver something here i mean it's all in the execution and um that's the challenge but i think you know they seem competent operators and i think they are capable of getting there um so i I think this is slightly overhyped i suspect they will come back i mean for me i um i I really hope they don't delist because it's useful from a hospitality industry perspective to have a listed company like this because it generates interest um in in these startups in in this sort of new types of hospitality so it would be a, a shame i think if it did delist um and um and i certainly don't think it's about to disappear now we've been looking over the results from the big hotel groups and uh, one of the earlier ones to report uh, its fourth quarter and full year 2023 figures was hilton uh, another strong quarter uh, but what was more perhaps a little bit more interesting than just the the raw numbers of what's been going Going on was what's going to happen next and um, it does feel like perhaps there's going to be a little bit of a sea change in the way Hilton behaves so Silton CEO Chris Nassetto has, has for many many times past 
he said that uh, Hilton's not really very interested in making acquisitions. They much prefer to uh, nurture, grow and develop their own brands internally uh, in order to grow their business. Um, but uh, boom, here come two deals uh, uh, like uh, like buses. They've come along together. They've uh, they've actually signed a strategic partnership with small luxury hotels of the world. Um, which is a, a grouping of independent hotels and this is effectively um, bolted on a, uh, a collection brand for Hilton straight away. Um, there could be up to 560 of the uh, SLH members joining uh, Hilton's honours programme, their, their loyalty programme and uh, as I say adding effectively what could be quite a substantial collection brand to the Hilton stable and then the other uh, piece of news that also came out this was much more of a rumor in the media and therefore uh, not something that the setter was keen to comment directly on is that um, uh, at a much sc smaller scale there is uh, possibly plans afoot for Hilton to acquire the Graduate Hotels brand. Uh, much smaller, it's got only 30 hotels, uh, most of them in the US, but a couple in the UK. And um, that again could be another sort of boutique uh, brand that in Hilton's hands could potentially go much larger. Um, Nasetta indicated that uh, the current marketplace is seeing degrees of stress which suddenly means that there are opportunities which he would previously have dismissed or passed up. Uh, and um, so suddenly it seems like Hilton's pressing some different buttons to generate uh, a stronger net organic growth figure for its uh, portfolio going forward. And uh, it's something we've seen in uh, some of the other presentations from other, some of the other big hotel groups. They are all looking to uh, improve their pace of growth of their portfolios uh, as this sort of market uh, sees signs of stress around the place. I think Hilton could be said to be the very model of disciplined capital steward regarding M&A. They have very firmly sat on their wallets. Um, queues and queues of investment bankers turning up with various pitch books of um, potential targets, etc., etc., um, and Hilton have turned them all away. Um, it's interesting, as you say, Chris, that they are now saying, well, you know, there's an opportunity here. And I think that there's two good things happening for Hilton right now in terms of the, the stress that's out there, particularly with the smaller uh, family-owned businesses, which are typically undercapitalized. Um, they, they have, um, you know, very few options in terms of what they're going to be doing. They could go with um, one of the big brands and certainly this is helping that uh, net unit growth number um, the organic piece and there's also going to be opportunities with uh, the smaller chains who are similarly stressed um, and want um, an exit and Hilton might be able to get something at a decent price and the um, graduate owner AJ Capital does seem to be in the process of striking some sort of deal. Um, interesting Hilton I mean it's always a tricky to read too much into this but there was uh you know it was noticeable that uh what chris nasetta didn't say was that uh, a deal has to be immediately earnings accretive which kind of suggests they might sort of pay a bit more 
than usual. Um, his, his phrase was, they must be accretive to the value of the company. Um, so there's a sort of longer term thing here. It's very much going to be brand driven. He was very clear on that. It's the smaller brands um, where they're adding something to Hilton's overall family of brands. So it's interesting that Hilton are coming into this. Now, the first deal you've um, mentioned there, Chris, SLH, isn't really uh, a, a, you know part of this process because, mm. of course, it's not costing any money mm. for Hilton. Um, it's simply a partnership. And what's happened here is uh, SLH have been snatched away from Hyatt, although, in a sense, um, Hyatt had already uh, put this uh, relationship in in trouble with its deal with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So there is, uh, which in turn was a poke in the eye for IHG. <laughs> um, so it's all, yeah. So what's happening here with SLH? Um, is that uh, the SLH properties are given the opportunity to sign up with Hilton. Mm. They can if they want to. Um, and if they decide they do want to, what what they are, are going to sign up to is that they will pay a franchise fee equivalent on any business that Hilton brings to them. So there's something like 540 SLH properties um, at the moment, about 370 of them are participating in Hyatt's loyalty program. Presumably, you know, they that 370 will be the ones most likely to um, come across um to hilton um slh has a strong footprint in europe about 240 so this is going to really help hilton with its uh european uh presence now the interesting bit i think here is in that owner relations thing um if you're offering a bunch of hotel owners a franchise fee only payable on the business that you're bringing through your own channels um, those who are signing up and paying a franchise fee on all their business are going to say well hang on a minute you know uh, what's going on here so i think this is going to be going to raise a few interesting questions um so i mean you know th it does seem to be quite favorable for an slh owner perspective i mean not only do they only pay for it's a kind of eat what you kill kind of thing um from from for hilton um so that you know they're only paying for what hilton brings to them there's also going to be capacity restraints on redemptions at uh, its properties which again is something which is rarely offered to uh, regular franchisees so um you know is this going to necessitate some shift in terms of the regular franchise contract i i speculate because i think you know the, it, there's a lot to play for right now out there and maybe if the big brands do come to market with a offer of look you know and eat what you kill they're sort of this is we're so confident in our system delivery you know we, we'll sign you up on this basis i think that's a very very um compelling proposition from a from a for an owner um, so, uh, of course, it's much higher risk for the brand company, but uh, you know, if they're prepared to go for it, I think it could get very interesting indeed. Now, some of the hotel alternatives we've just had a look at, um, as they've brought out figures indicating they're back to rude health and uh, indeed attracting further investment. So, um, we've had some results out from the hostel operators A and O, and from uh, Safe Stay. Um, and we've also had a quick look at a business called Outsight. So uh, A&O um, pushing on a uh, big cross-Europe-based uh, hostel group now. Um, 
fantastic uh, results 217 million of euros of revenues last year um, pushing on and uh, opening up another site shortly uh, in Florence uh, uh, Safe Stay, a UK, much smaller UK listed group, um, struggled through the pandemic and indeed had to sell off one of its crown jewels, its, uh, its Edinburgh hostel to stay alive, um, but has uh, subsequently found a, a new building in, in Edinburgh, has acquired that and is about to uh, start the refurb to get that up and running. And in, in fact, uh, newly backed by a, a new financing deal getting some long-term money from uh, HSBC. So um, both of those are set fair and they both see uh, some interesting upside. So um, they're getting more business travellers. Uh, they're appealing to a broader number of segments. It's no longer just the uh, the backpackers and the groups of school kids and students. They do seem to be uh, uh, developing uh, s some extent of a of a broader consumer and a, a business traveller market. So they both uh, are looking confident and seeing seeing further upside. And then the other business we we looked at, uh, which is interesting because again it's sort of a, a slightly askew from the main accommodation um, and ho hotel market but is important because they're going to be looking to buy hotels is a business called Outsite. Uh, so this is a co-living, co-working um, sort of uh, offer for for the uh, the digital nomads but what's interesting is this built a it's built a bit of a base in the states. It's now looking to come into Europe. But it's attracted three major investors who are very impressed by the business model and are looking uh, to start acquiring uh, properties across Europe, which Outsite will then uh, run and manage. Um, so this is kind of like a slimmed down, semi-serviced apartment sort of business. Um, uh, but what's interesting is that they're going to be looking to buy smaller hotels in the sort of 20 to 70 room scale um, across European city centres. Uh, so taking out perhaps some of that independent uh, hotel offer and reworking it into a new offer which includes workspace as well as perhaps uh, shared apartments and or good old fashioned hotel style, service department style accommodation too. What's a digital nomad? Have you ever met a digital nomad? No, I've always assumed I'm far too old to bump into any. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe. Uh, yeah, um, but surely, you know, we ought to know some. Well, <coughs> and I, well, I don't perhaps know you any. never see um, them because they're busy being nomads. And so you won't bump into them in a, the sort of places we might regularly frequent. No, um, they're, they're nomads, not hermits. <laughs> I think that's the. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the problem with the digital nomad market is I just don't think it's that big at all. Um, and it's very, I think I would suggest, very dangerous um, trying to uh, establish a, 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 you know, a, a brand geared around what is effectively a very tiny market. Well, we've seen, um, uh, I mean, we've seen um, Selena, for example, have, have issues, haven't we? And, uh yeah. precisely precisely the same elusive digital mm. nomads um 
Mm. Who are they? Um, um, I, I just, you know, I just don't know, you know, what scale or size there is out there. There's lots of fancy marketing reports talking about them, <laughs> but um, I, they just don't seem to actually exist in the real world. It, it's not dissimilar, actually, in terms of what we were talking about with Soho House, which is this challenge of doing something um, special, but actually having a market broad enough to make it economic. Uh, you know, to actually deliver a return for your investment um, and you've got a similar thing here in which you know you're drilling down to a certain segment to actually offer something which is very meaningful and special so you capture that entire bit of the market segment but that market segment has to be big enough to give you a meaningful return now my old economics professor used to talk about um, his analogy he always used was ice cream stands on the beach so the first one two three maybe even four you're always going to put them in the middle of the beach because that's where you maximize your customers but once you get to sort of six or seven in the middle of the beach it might be good to open an ice cream stand at one or other end of the the beach because then you've got people who are going to be prepared to buy your ice cream perhaps a little slightly more expensive because it saves them having to walk all the way to the middle but of course your market size is significantly smaller um i actually think in the case of digital nomads and these things there they've actually set the ice cream stand up on the <laughs> <laughs> at the back of the beach and there's about two sunbathers there um but anyway so I, th I think this is the problem with that i mean for the other stuff we're talking about like the hostels the extended stay the co-living co-working overlap piece i get I get that um, and I think you've made a good case about how hostels are broadening beyond you know the, the students and the uh, um, school tour groups and actually tapping into the family market which I think is a potentially very valuable one and you know people who don't want to chance it with an Airbnb in terms of the very variable experience they can get um, go with a brand that's actually likely to deliver something that you know what you're going to get and you know you can get a family room in these places and you know you've got even Hilton coming into play in this area with its motto where they've got these more flexible rooms that can be set up for that and you've got other brands coming um you know a friend of the of hotel analyst uh, Nafneet Barney's uh, live in um is a good example of extended stay co-living um mash up if you like um his first one's at Frankfurt airport which is probably almost certainly going to have see more uh, short-term guests but I think as he extends the brand out he you know I think that that he's going to exploit more of the longer stay co-living piece and you've got stuff like Eden's lock and things like this as well getting into the extended stay um, piece and you know Zoku is another spin um, very focused on that co-working environment providing the uh, accommodation alongside that and they have a very business hotel service proposition which I think you you referenced and of course the I suppose the big daddy of all of this is the social hub previously known as the student hotel um, it's opening its latest uh, branch in Glasgow in April um, and this is coming from that purpose-built student accommodation sector um, and morphed into uh, um, an extended stay and hotel-like product um, all, all of these have that community aspect and they're all built around the, the community the notion of having a community there um, 
and I kind of I, I I think there's huge amounts of opportunity. Savills talks about. Um, report they put out uh, uh, the, towards the end of last year they talked about there being 4,000 operational co-living units in the UK but with 9,700 so more than twice as many with planning consent and 6,500 of those under construction um, and you know they just, there's even another 7,300 at planning application stage so all told 2.25 billion pounds of uh, capital being deployed in in the co-living sector uh, alone in the UK so it just gives us an idea that there is serious money being deployed in this space and I think it's it, it's very exciting and interesting and there's going to be lots of people that um, you know um, pitch their ice cream stand on the rocks I would suggest and there's going to be others that are more successful at building uh, a, a niche which can be scaled and uh, um, successful. Okay now we're going to turn to our five star and no star awards of the week and uh, five stars Andrew I think it's going for yeah I think we are, yeah, I think <clears throat> we are turning the corner in terms of this um, real estate cycle now I think there's growing optimism we had a week or so ago um, Blackstone's John Gray talking about how the office market was bottoming out in the US <clears throat> and that's been a big cause of the doom and gloom among real estate investors and um, CBRE um, are now saying the same thing. Um, I, I think we we do seem to be you know on the up now where we're, we've hit bottom and you know 2024 is going to be a lot better than 2023 both in terms of the outcome um in terms of value so we we stopped declining we're now um i wouldn't say officers <laughs> are about to start climbing up but uh, uh, certainly they've stopped dropping as precipitously as they have been um and I think that's you know when you factor in uh, in the very likely um, interest rate cuts we're going to be seeing in in most major markets over this year. I think it's looking for a much healthier, much more robust 2024. And the no stars I think is um, just the confirmation of how bad 23 was with the official. Um, recession um, flag being flown now both in the UK and in Japan uh, we've seen it in Germany so we've got this very difficult uh, period we've just come through um, the UK has suffered the worst fall in living standards since records began um, those records began back in 1955 so it's been a very difficult period but what we are seeing is real terms wage growth, that is wages growing faster than inflation, um, um, which is, means there's more money to spend. And, and the market and the economy is going to start growing from here on in. So um, no stars for actually that, it, you know, it was truly grim in 23, um, but five stars for the prospects. For and on that happy note, 24. we'll say goodbye for now. <laughs>